two months later, I'm working in Wichita, Kansas, and I'm sitting on the ground outside a dumpy motel room after six days of smoking crack and watching police search my car and <laughs> there's bullet holes in the car and you know, this cop is holding a crack pipe and he's looking at me shaking his head and, you know, and all I could think was, you know, any normal rational person would have been thinking I'm in some serious shit here. Like I got some problems. And all I could think of is like, so that's where that pipe was, you know, like I spent like five hours looking for that thing. And, you know, and it was, I was sick. And, uh, and I finally realized in that moment that nobody was coming to save me. Welcome to Overshare, a show where I interview creatives I admire about the struggles of being a creative professional. I'm your host, Justin Genak, and I'm also the co-founder and CEO of Working Not Working. Now, this is day 30-something of uh, social distancing and working from home and uh, doing all right, holding up, trying to make the most of each day, and hopefully you're doing the same. Uh, I have a little bit of housekeeping I want to take care of right here is if you've listen to previous episodes of Overshare and you've gotten anything out of it or after listening to this one, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes or anywhere else you can subscribe, rate, and review. That helps us show up higher in the search rankings and helps others discover us. Also, if there's anything uh, that you hear and hear and you know someone that needs to hear it too, please share the episode directly with them. It would mean a lot to us. You can also go to our Instagram at Overshare Talks to find sound bites and clips that you can share with people as well or put even on your own feed, uh, which would be amazing. Now, I could talk about all of the stuff I did this weekend or what I've been binging on Netflix, but I'm too excited about this conversation with Charlie Engel today, and it's a long one. It's full wall-to-wall with inspiration and motivation, so let's just get right into it. Now, Charlie isn't the typical creative person I have on Overshare. Granted, he has taken photographs, has written a book, which I've linked to in the show notes. He's also starred in a documentary produced and narrated by Matt Damon with a score by Hans Zimmer. But I saw Charlie speak about his story at a conference over a year ago, and I knew I had to have him on here. He's a recovering addict who overcame his addiction by running. And not just normal running like you and I might do. He does like crazy ultra marathons through insane terrain like the Amazon and did a lot of those. And then an idea came up by one of his friends, which was, has anybody ever run across the Sahara Desert? And uh, they looked into it. And as far as they could tell, nobody had. So Charlie and his two teammates were the first to run across the entire Sahara edge to edge. And they did two marathons a day for 111 straight days. That's insane. There was like 140 degrees out, sandstorms, uh, all sorts of crazy conditions, and they only had four showers during that entire time. Uh, so after the high of having that award-winning documentary made about him, he also ended up going to jail for 21 months, which we get into on here, and you can hear the whole story of why and how, and it's kind of bogus. Um, some days he was running around the prison yard, and when they were in lockdown, he'd run a marathon in place in his cell. Everyone thought he was nuts, which apparently is a good thing in prison for people to think you're crazy. Uh, But now Charlie has moved on from that, has done amazing things since then, and he's about to attempt his greatest feat. He wants to be the first athlete to trek from the lowest point to the highest point on every continent. So he wants to go from the bottom of the Dead Sea, dive down, and then trek across the landscape with biking and kayaking and running, and then climb Mount Everest. Now, that is his ultimate one, and it's a very difficult and expensive trip to pull off. 
Um, so he's starting with other continents first. So last fall he did Africa, and uh, it was a little sketchy. He got kidnapped at gunpoint in Kenya, and there's a blog post about that, which I've linked to as well in the show notes. And But at the end, he finished at the top of Kilimanjaro, and it's so insane. Clearly, Charlie's life is not dull, and neither is he. His story of overcoming adversity is the perfect thing for this moment. How do we get through these tough days? How do we bounce back from our lowest lows and make something out of it? And how much more are we really capable of than we even think? And I was happy to get to chat with Charlie again, uh, so I could personally thank him for inspiring me to run my first half marathon. I met him at that conference, and I said, yeah, you know, I'm not a runner, but uh, yeah, I'm going to commit to running a half marathon now. And I had no idea how life-changing that experience would be. And I, I you know, anyone who knows me t- knows I tend to get a bit emotional. And so you'll hear, I think this might be the most emotional I've gotten on Overshare for a second. And, uh, but you, you'll hear what Charlie did for me and why it meant so much. Uh, in this episode, you will learn how you are capable of so much more than you even know. And there's never the perfect time for anything. You just need to make a decision to commit and then figure out how to do it, which Charlie has done time and time again. Now, we're still getting the hang of this remote recording thing, so Charlie's audio quality is a little crunchy, uh, but if you can tolerate that, which I know you can, it's well, well worth it, and I I promise uh, you're going to get a ton out of this. Charlie says, if you have something to give, to keep it, you must give it away. Now, you will not keep your gift if you do not share it with other people. And now, being able to have these conversations is one of my gifts, and I feel so fortunate to get to share it with you. So enjoy this remarkable one with Mr. Charlie Engel. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you. Uh, I saw you speak at Worlds in, I think it was October 2018. And we had a you know a brief conversation at the after party. And uh, I told you, like, I'm not a runner. I think the, I would run five times a year, like two, two miles a time, just because I felt guilty for not exercising. And I had seen, you know, I live in New York, so I've seen the New York Marathon go by. And I was like, oh, I could never do that. And then I saw you speak and I and I told you at the time, I was like, you inspired me to sign up for a half marathon. It's something I don't think I could do, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for it. And six months later, I still hadn't signed up for it. And I was feeling, I was, it was two in the morning. I'm watching crappy TV. I'm on Instagram going through stories and an ad comes up for the Brooklyn Half Marathon. And I was like, damn it. I'm like, I got to do it. <laughs> I told Charlie I was going to do it and I, I got to do it. So I signed up and I, I started training. And I don't know if anything could, could have been more life-changing. And uh, it's, pr- it's pretty crazy. I, I, now I'm getting emotional. Ah, damn it. Yeah. Uh, but it's one That's of those exciting. things. Like, when I, I went to the training, I ended up training in six, six different countries. And I think 10 or 12 different cities just because of the travel we were doing for work and, and for uh, going to different events with friends. And, and just having that experience and seeing cities in a different way because you're just, you know, finding a point to run to and, and coming back. And, and then the starting line, I got so emotional that, that day as I'm going in front of the Brooklyn Museum, just knowing how much I'd gone through in the previous three years because I'd gone through a separation and a divorce and just how much my life has changed and doing something that I didn't think I could do. And, you know, it was just, it was, it was incredible. So thank you for that. No, I, I mean, I remember our conversation well and, and you, the hardest part is to hit the enter button on your computer. And 
uh, I remind people all the time that there's never, there's never a perfect time for anything. It's never a perfect time to start a family or a business or like mm-hmm. if you, if you wait for all the stars to align and magically it's going to be that perfect moment, you're, you're kidding yourself. You know, we, yeah. we make decisions, we commit to things and then we back into how we're going to do it. And obviously we're going to get into my story, but I, I always make the joke that, um, you know, and it's kind of dark humor, of course, because as I'm a recovering addict, as you know, mm-hmm. and after the sort of, uh, after the, any good part of doing drugs, which was very short lived after that part was over, the rest of it was pretty much misery. But the one time that crazy as it is, that I actually felt powerful was the acquisition of the drug, mm-hmm. like, you know, getting them in my hand and in my pocket like was powerful. And then of course I would do the drugs and, and it would be, you know, back to hell. And it's weird to compare that to entering a race. But my point is mm. there's nothing more powerful than hitting the enter button and making the commitment to do something because from there it's unlimited possibilities. You don't know what's coming. Mm-hmm. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how the experience is going to go, but you just feel hopeful. And, and it's, it's a powerful thing. And, and people get scared of, of like needing to prepare a certain way. There's no such thing. Even the most professional best runners in the world never have what you'd call perfect preparation. There's always going to be travel injuries, relationship issues, whatever it might be, you know, and you just have to keep moving forward. Yeah. It's, it's spot on. And before we get in, so this season we've started a couple of new segments. And before we get in, I just want to just kind of do some 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 lighthearted uh, five random questions from a random receptacle. Now, Great. these are just supposed to be easy layups. Um, and I, I'm using my running water bottle. Um, right. So I've just got some numbers written on here. I'll just pull them out and then we'll see what, ah. see what we got here. Hopefully. Hopefully. Hopefully you don't get asked these that often because I feel like this is you, know, dangerous. you, do, a lot of, you yeah. do a lot of interviews. So. All right. First question is in high school, you should have been voted most likely to what? <laughs> oh my God. I should have been most voted most likely to be a stand up comedian. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's what I believe because we, I believe, I always believe I'm the funniest person around. Nobody else does, which kind of yeah. goes against being a successful stand-up yeah. comedian. Yeah, well, that wasn't, that wasn't one of the criteria. It wasn't successful. Right. It was just stand-up comedian. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, that's good. Uh, next one is, uh, now, if you want to share this, what is the last photo in your camera roll? And can you tell me a little bit about what that photo is? It's probably something tremendously narcissistic. So hold on one second and I'll tell you because uh, I do a fair amount of documentation. Yeah. Um, oh, this is good though. Want to hold it so, up to the camera? Yeah, it is actually technically not a photo, but it's what I, it's something I posted today. All right. So I do um, something that I don't think anybody else does to my knowledge. I review books. I'm a runner. So I listen to books all the time. Mm-hmm. I probably listen to at least six books a month. I mean, easily. Right. Uh, I, ru- I run a lot of miles. And so once a week, I'll do a uh, book review of something that I've read. And this book, Night of the Gun, is it's a recovery addiction thing. New York Times uh, journalist 
from several years back. And I'm giving you way longer. I'm sorry. This is supposed to be no, quick. No, it's okay. But it's okay. He, um, this guy, David Carr, you know, the whole premise of this book, and I find it to be so interesting, is he was a recovering addict, and then he became a journalist for the New York Times. And there was a night, the night of the gun, mm-hmm. right? He had a narrative that he told himself about how things went that night. Like, there was a gun, and he was wasted, and this whole crazy thing happened. But he, his memory of it was very specific. Right. But what he chose to do as a journalist was go back. So he went back and he interviewed 60 people and he did all this deep dive into what actually happened. And what actually happened was completely different than his memory of it. And wow. I thought that what's interesting about the book is it's, an, you know, we tell ourselves stories, right? We as human beings, our narrative, even if it's a case of a bad argument from with our dad when we were 12 or yeah. I don't care what it is, we create the narrative around that incident and it becomes the truth yeah. by the by default. And this book is so interesting because he went back and examined his own memory and it turned out to be really faulty. So, um, so to be fair, though, hang on one quick second. To be fair... That one is the other. That's the actual true last photo. Is it and that and was that's a selfie? Yeah, it's a selfie. You know, I've gotten incredibly good at uh, like putting the camera down and figuring out how to turn the timer on. And so, uh, so you put it down, set the timer on, run back, and then run run forward. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and there's the old trick for anybody who wants to know the other trick of you know. You just turn on video because you can always just turn on video and you can grab a screenshot from yeah. anything. And people, you know, do all kinds of contortions to try to get photos that if they just can put their camera down somewhere cool, let it ride, whatever you're doing, and then pull a screen grab from it. So there you go. That's great. I'm going to send you an episode of a podcast I love called Heavyweight uh, that's along the same pre- premise of Night of the Gun. Um, and it was with Rob. Love it. What was his name? Rob Cordry, uh, actor from like Hot Tub yeah. Time Machine and all that. And he distinctly remembers breaking his arm or breaking his leg when he was a kid, and no one else in his family remembers it. Huh. And and so they they go and investigate the whole thing and try to find out the truth about it. And uh, it's really fascinating. So yeah, it's interesting the that. stories we tell ourselves right. and and everyone yeah. else's different perspectives. So. All right. Well, next. we and we yeah, and we sorry. we tell them to make ourselves feel better sometimes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we tell them to make ourselves feel worse or to make somebody else feel worse. Or mm-hmm. it is just crazy. And as an well, that's for even quote unquote normal people. Right. For addicts and alcoholics, you know, you've got the added uh, challenge of trying to figure out what you actually remember because you were wasted. Right. Um, and so it becomes even a different thing altogether. And, um, you know, I love it. Send it. Send yeah. It. And it's amazing how often we think we offended someone or someone was mad at us from a situation. And then if, when you actually ask them about it, like, oh, I don't remember that conversation. <laughs> and <they're> like, oh. <laughs> well, and then it also is amazing. The flip side of that, like, you know, there are I've had a tumultuous relationship for my entire life with my father. And, you know, there are certain things that he has said to me when I was young, when I was whatever, he, you know, he's a tough guy. And so, Mm -hmm. um, some of those things really 
hit the mark, right? And they they bored into me in a way where I'll never forget them. And during actual civil conversations that we've had from time to time, I'll bring something up. And I mean, he genuinely has no recollection yep. of it. Yeah. And the lesson in that too, though, is I've tried with my own kids who are both, my boys are both in their 20s now. I mean, well into their mid 20s. And so we've had conversations because they remember things that I've said um, you know, that I may not remember, or I've tried to go to great lengths to clean up the damage you know, the, as I say, the wreckage of my past, because, mm-hmm. you know, it's pretty rare that a parent can go through life and not have to apologize to their kids once in a while for either being a jerk or being something. And, yeah. you know, so the good, the good news is the lessons and, and certain things like that, uh, if you can, actually remember them and, and use those lessons with your own kids. Uh, it can really make a difference. Yeah. Uh, all right. We got the next question here is what's your guilty pleasure? Cookies easily cookies. I am, I am a, you know, I, I don't, I've never owned a t-shirt that says I run for cookies, but I probably should, you know, and I am like, I'm like, I'm, we're almost entirely gluten-free in this household and, you know, we're both plant-based, my wife and I, which is great because if, if it was only one of us, it would be a pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, yeah, easily cookies are my guilty pleasure from, you know, from a food standpoint. And the other one I would, they popped in, they popped simultaneously is actually the walking dead. You know, I, apparently I'm attracted to zombies. Uh, uh-huh. so the TV show, the walking dead is uh, yeah. a guilty pleasure for sure. Yeah. I, I fell off the, the Rick's last season and I, I, I haven't recorded, but I haven't watched it yet. So I, I went back to, I just started again on season nine and okay. I will admit, I looked to see they're already talking season. I mean, season 10 is already done and they've yeah. got a season 11. So I, I was a little, like, I actually want it to end. It's yeah. It's a lot like, to stay like, committed to. Yeah, I'd like to just have an ending now. I'm really kind of tired of it, but it is still. Uh, if I don't, if I just want to disappear for a while, that's that's where I go. Yeah. Uh, all right. Next question here is this one: Did you or do you currently have an imaginary friend? Well, that's really none of your business, Justin. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> what? What'd you say? Oh, I'm just kidding. It's imaginary. No, but when I was a kid. Um, when I was a kid, I actually managed, I imagined that Johnny Carson's uh, sidekick, Ed McMahon was my friend. I actually imagined that he was my father, which was a really weird thing. So when I was probably nine, 10 years old, I shouldn't have been staying up watching Johnny Carson, but that's the kind of household I grew up in. Yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, Johnny, Johnny Carson's sidekick, Ed McMahon was absolutely my imaginary friend. And I talked to him all the time and. I love, he just seemed like a guy that I'd, I'd want as a dad. Oh, that's, he's a like, like jolly guy, laughed a yeah. lot. He just seemed yeah. like a nice dude. Yeah, he probably drank a lot. I don't know, who knows, at nine or 10, you know, but uh, yeah. <laughs> it was funny. And then, uh, yeah, he was, it was, uh, I spent years staying up that late to watch Johnny Carson when I was a kid. I grew up in a very bohemian household. Uh, with my mother, not with my dad, but, right. um, yeah. So, uh, I was a, um, uh, definitely a free range child as we say. 
Yeah. Well, it's a, in Bohemian Household, it's impressive you even had TV. Yeah, we. I only, I had the one TV, and it was a 12-inch black and white, and it was in my room. So it was the one, like, I don't know. I actually don't know if I begged for it, or I don't know how it even came to be that I had it. Yeah. Um, but somehow I was lucky enough, I guess, to have it. And, uh, you know, I didn't have any brothers or sisters, so it, it was uh, okay. It was a good companion to have. Yeah, and, and you got to hang out with uh, Johnny Carson and your dad every night. Yeah. Ed McMahon, exactly. <laughs> Ed McMahon. All right, last question from the water bottle here. Let's All right. Uh, all right. Uh, what was your favorite movie as a kid? Oh. So being a kid is complicated because, again, I grew up in a time where I was allowed to watch any movie mm-hmm. and was taken to any movie. So even as a kid, I saw The Godfather. I saw... <laughs> You know, I would actually say that in all likelihood, the, the, my favorite movie as a kid was so totally politically incorrect. And you couldn't even, I don't even know if you can, you could make this film today, but it was Blazing Saddles. Mm-hmm. You know, Blazing Saddles was uh, just, uh, I thought it was the most hilarious, amazing film ever. And if you, did you see it? You see I Blazing haven't Saddles? seen it yet. It's on the list of you know, classics I'm supposed to watch. Yeah. yeah, Gene Wilder. I mean, look, there's a lot of racial stuff in it that was just, you know, it it's it just is what it is. But there's a um, there's a particularly amazing fart scene in that movie, <laughs> and you know, I don't care who you are, especially if you're a you know a ten year old boy. You know, farts are just funny, and I'm I'm 57, and they're still yeah, funny. They're, so. they're still funny. Yeah, they're very funny. So you know, any movie that can incorporate that. Uh, so yeah, I'll go with Blazing Saddles for a hundred, Justin. There you go, there you go. Uh, and I'm <laughs> not at all sure how to segue from fart jokes from Blazing Saddles to yeah. your origin story and how you got into running, but uh, yeah. we'll, we'll find a way to weave it together. Yeah, um, easy, easy. I'll, I'll leave it up to you then. Um, yeah, I think, you I know, think, well, yeah. I mean, uh, you you actually got so I grew up in this household, and I love this. I love to say this because I get to talk about my mom for a second. But I grew up in a house where super liberal. My mom was a theater person, a playwright, and I was pretty much surrounded by adults all the time. And and so you know, for better or for worse, I was a very mature child. You know, I had I had been around a lot of adults uh, partying and just whatever. And and so I was exposed to a lot of But my mom never as I like to say, my mom taught me how to think and not what to think. So she was not the kind of parent that was going to say, this is how you should view this. This is how you should think about this. I would ask her a question. In fact, she'd never give me a straight answer. Drove me nuts. I'd say, you know, who should I vote for? Not that I could vote, but, right. you know, who are you going to vote for in the election, in the presidential? And she'd say, well, you know, some people believe this and some people believe that, and you're just going to have to make up your own mind. And and that was in the face of, like, I know now she was the most liberal human being on the planet. Therefore, I know who she, you know, would right. have voted for and what. But she, I appreciated the fact that she forced me to think for myself in pretty much every situation. Mm-hmm. So I did manage to go on to high school and have a really like, you know, a career of, of uh, good grades, good sports, 
pretty girlfriends and student body president and all that stuff. And I went to UNC Chapel Hill and I fully expected that I was going to be, you know, a superhero when I got there. Like, obviously I'm special uh-huh. and I get to Carolina and there's 4,000 other freshmen who basically have the same resume I have, yeah. you know, and I figured out that in fact, I was pretty average. And, uh, you know, as a 17 year old freshman, it really, uh, I got lost. And, and mm-hmm. what I figured out really quickly is I was an amazing first team, exceptional drinker. And, you know, and I, the drinking age was still 18 in North Carolina in 1980 when I went to school and, you know, and I found an identity in drinking. I became that guy mm-hmm. who could drink more than anyone else. And cocaine was ubiquitous in the 80s. Right. And I'm going to speed right through this whole part of the story. You know, 10 years later, I'm still chasing my first high, you know, mm-hmm. because that's basically what an addict does. You know, they have a certain feeling in a certain set of circumstances and then we spend all our time trying to recreate recreate those same feelings and it's never the same again you have to do more yeah it's terrible so finally the birth of my first son when i was 29 years old um i knew that that would finally be the the thing the incident the happening that would finally stop me because I've I'd, I'd been to rehab. I tried everything I could think of to quit right. for many years and nothing had ever worked. And, you know, I thought he was going to save me, basically. And a couple months after he was born, you know, I remember holding this beautiful baby boy and, um, you know, just being amazed at, at this human being that I had responsibility. And, I, and as an addict, I felt love for him that I didn't think I was capable of. You know, and from him, because as an addict, I thought I was just broken. Right. And I was so ashamed of the person I was that I thought I wasn't entitled to have anyone love me. And for a little while, it worked. I stayed strong and I was awesome. And, you know, two months later, I'm working in Wichita, Kansas, and I'm sitting on the ground outside a dumpy motel room after six days of smoke and crack. And watching police search my car and (laughs) there's bullet holes in the car. And, you know, this cop is holding a crack pipe and he's looking at me shaking his head. And, you know, and all I could think was, you know, any normal rational person would have been thinking I'm in some serious shit here. Like I got some problems. And all I could think of is like, so that's where that pipe was, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Like I spent like five hours looking for that thing. (laughs) And, you know, and it was, I was sick. And, uh, and I finally realized in that moment that nobody was coming to save me. And if, if I didn't take action, I was going to die. And, uh, you know, and I, I really had a choice to make between living and dying and I chose running <laughs> and, uh, which was that something you, know you had now. done? Was that something you had done in the past? Like, wh- wh- yeah. So you, you were athletic. So that was like, all right, I know how to do this. Yeah, I okay. ran in, in high school and I ran pretty well in high school, actually. And I went to college and, you know, I went, actually went to Carolina to play football, never played, um, ended up walking onto the basketball team, which, you know, that's how, that's how cocky I still was, you know, playing basketball <laughs> at UNC wasn't going to happen. But, 
I made the JV team and I actually was, you know, Michael Jordan and James Worthy were there and, um, you know, Dean Smith was the coach. And so I got a chance to be around these guys for a couple of years, but, you know, my path was set, you know, I was, uh, I was an addict. I was born an addict. I was a fourth generation addict and I came by it honestly. And that path was pretty much inevitable. I was going to find my way to drugs and alcohol. And, um, and this is a weird nuance and I keep it brief, but even in throughout high, throughout college and beyond, I used running as a, I was a binger. So I'd go six mm-hmm. months of hard drug use. And then I'd say, I'm, I finally hit that point where I'm done. I'm never going to do that again. And I'd use running as part of the mechanism to get healthy again. And, and I would go run fast races and I would achieve some things and like, yeah. I'd, I'd start feeling better again. And then I'd head back down the other path. Right. But I also used running as a punishment mm. and I don't, it's something I've been saying I would need to, I need to sit down and write more about it. And it is in the book, but I mean, I, I used running as a way to punish myself because I could go out and run to the point of, I mean, pretty much anybody can to the point of like puking. And right. making yourself hurt. Like I felt like a terrible human being that I needed to punish myself for my bad behavior. Yeah. And I didn't know what else to do. So I'd use running just to beat the crap out of myself for those years. But what it taught me was I was actually a pretty decent runner. And when I finally, you know, the day I finally made a decision sitting in that uh, parking lot in Wichita, Kansas, you know, I went to a, a recovery meeting that night and I got up the next morning and I went for a run and I, and I did those two things every single day for three straight years without wow. missing a day because I needed the structure. I needed both. Mm-hmm. I was not a guy that was just going to be able to go to AA meetings and stay sober. I needed a physical outlet from running and I needed the the spiritual and community outlet, not religious by, by the way, but spiritual outlet and community outlet that I got from the 12 step recovery community. And, you know, and I became identified with those two, you know, ultra running ultimately and, and recovery. And they're my people, you know, I mean, we're in this together. We all know what suffering is about whether it's self-inflicted or, or put upon us, um, there's a certain thing that goes with that. And so for me running, yeah, running was something I did during all those years. But then when I finally, you know, and, and I should also say, I spent those first three years, I ran like 30 marathons, you know, and as I like to say, clearly I had that whole addiction thing under control. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, and, and it was a learning experience. I mean, I was actually trying to eliminate my addict. Like if mm-hmm. I had a gun and I could have shot just that part of me, yeah. <laughs> wherever it lived, I would have done it. Or a scalpel is probably a better way to look at it. If I could have yeah. cut that little piece of me out and no longer had that addict, I would have done it. And it would have been a terrible mistake. Because what I actually learned in those three years is my addict is all the best parts of me. It's, it's what makes me who I am. If I did not have my addictive qualities, I probably wouldn't be good at anything. And yeah. 
so taking those powers and pointing them towards something positive, you know, my mom back then used to say, you know, use your superpowers for good. And if I could, if I just didn't drink and do drugs, I basically could use that energy to do some pretty cool stuff. Yeah. That's pretty phenomenal. Uh, and, and I've been in, uh, I haven't gone in a while, which, you know, I would like to, but I, I, I started going to Al-Anon about six, seven years ago. And just mm. the, the benefit of being in a room full of people who uh, he, he, all or many have experienced or uh, experienced or voiced similar things to what you're feeling or thinking or have gone through is uh, incredibly powerful. And I, you know, I, I've started a support group for creative people um, kind of similarly mm. modeled to that where it's just, you, you just realize you're not as fucked up and special as you think you are. Uh, yeah. when you're in a room like that and and that's that alone is probably enough to keep to keep going back and, and, it, and it keeps you keep, can keep you really sane and also unlock so many things i'll join your group so <laughs> you know and, and it is one of those things and i, I love the you know aa and 12-step recovery is full of <laughs> um cliches and yes. uh, we love our cliches, but there's no, there's not one more powerful than one day at a time. And like right now in this moment that we're recording this and I mean, could it be any more prevalent or relevant? Yeah. I should say, yeah. because, uh, I, we can't control tomorrow. Like for like literally for the first time, I think ever, like nobody has any clue what's coming tomorrow or next week or a month from now at this moment. And so the only thing that you can do is focus on being present and taking care of what's right in front of you. And those are lessons that I learned through recovery, you know, for many, many years when the anxiety would hit and, uh, you know, and I'd start worrying about where I'm going to be six months or a year, or 10 years from now. And, you know, it, it, it has really paid dividends during this kind of you know crazy time period that we're in. And I, and I also think that, Look, I believe very strongly in sharing the struggle. You know, social media in particular has made us all think that everybody else's life is fantastic. And uh -huh. I'm the I'm the 10 millionth person, <clears throat> excuse me, to say that. So that's not a new idea. But in instead of just saying it, what I like to do is actually kind of dump my crap out, as you saw on stage mm -hmm. when you saw me speak one time. You know, I'm most comfortable when I get a chance to kind of pour some of that stuff out uh, for my own benefit first. But then people relate to struggle because we all yeah. struggle. Even in yeah. the best of times, life is a freaking struggle. Yeah, it's a, it's a gift. Sure, it's a gift. It's a gift I'd like to give back once in a while. But it's a gift. Yes, but it is still a struggle. I don't care how awesome your life is. We all struggle and sharing yeah. that struggle with other people is way more powerful than sharing only victories. Yeah. Well, because the victories aren't always relatable. And it's the reason, you know, typically this podcast, I talk to creative people. I admire about the struggles of being a creative professional. Um, and I think you, you know, are a bit tangential, but it's still of the same ilk because just the way you've approached your, your career and the things you do and the challenges you take on the reinvention that happens and the curiosity that happens, I think is very relevant. Uh, but we can relate in those struggles. And I think, do you find that sharing those struggles so publicly um, also helps diffuse the shame? Oh, yeah. 
No, that's a that's a really great way to put it, Justin, because it absolutely does. Because I am, I'm still, you know, I still carry around that shame. Not so much of what I did anymore around, I mean, life goes on. I've been yeah. 27 years clean and sober, and I've done plenty of crap that I'm ashamed of in sobriety. I mean, at right. least at least back then I could blame it on being wasted. Yeah. Um, you know, some of it anyway. And, yeah. uh, you know, in, in the rest of my life, you know, it's been just like all of us. It's a constant sort of struggle between wanting to be successful, whatever that means to any individual and wanting to feel the love and admiration of other people. And, you know, I've chosen to be very public, which also, this won't surprise you. It also gets me some, you know, I get the ire of certain members in 12 step recovery who don't Mm. appreciate it. You know, they want to remind me all the time that this is an anonymous program. And, and yet I'm all, I mean, the only person I ever talk about is me. I know right. I certainly exactly. don't out any, it's not my job to out anybody else's sobriety. They can do it for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if they give me express permission to do it, I, I could do it, but right. I don't think I ever have, but you know, back in the day too, uh, this is a little divergence, you know, when, when AA was created like 85 years ago, you know, there might've been a hundred members. So if one person had a really public relapse, you know, then other people might say, oh, AA doesn't work. 12 step recovery, that that stuff is nonsense. It doesn't work. Just look at that. Whereas I could, I've, I've made terrible jokes. Excuse me, any sober people who are watching this. I've always said, if I have a relapse, I'm going to like announce it a couple months in advance and do it on like a Zoom or I do it on Instagram. And of course, I don't really mean that, but the, the, you know, the point is nobody would actually like, nobody would then stand up and say, Oh, see, I told you a doesn't work. You know, there's too many tens of millions of people out there who have found recovery of some type from a 12 step program, AACA, Al-Anon, Gamblers Anonymous, porn, anything you can think of, there's a program for it. And, the, the nuts and bolts of the program are important, but the community is more important. Absolutely. Having a safe place where you can go and say this stuff out loud and not be judged or ashamed. I mean, I'll never forget going to my first meetings way back in the day and, and saying out loud stuff that I thought was the worst stuff I could ever say, um, embarrassing, shameful, and literally having other people in the, in the room laugh at me. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, that's like, yeah. Yeah. They're like, that's all you got. It's like, you know, come on, man. Yeah. You know, and, then they'll, and then they'll tell their own stories. And there's, yeah. you know, there's amazing comfort in camaraderie and fellowship and, this is a unique time that we're in, and I'm sorry if I'm like dating your show. No, um, we've been doing it all season because okay. there's no way to ignore what we're going oh. through right now. And I think this episode's going to release in a couple of weeks while we're, I'm assuming, still going still through in this. It. And, so yeah. I think, and that's well, why I wanted to co- talk to you now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, COVID 19 is a bizarre thing, right? Because usually, when when any of us individually are going through a hard time, whether it's professionally or in a relationship or whatever it is, that hard time is private. Even if other people know about it in your circle, it's generally private and you, Mm -hmm. 
worry, especially as a creative person, because I'm a writer. So I worry that everyone else is writing better stuff than me. Everyone else is making better art than I am. And strangely, there's comfort in the fact that we're all in this misery together. You know, everyone in the world. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a weird comfort. I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not glad that we're here, but I'm not nearly as stressed about it because the, somehow the pain of it both now and what's to come in the future, it's going to be shared. Mm-hmm. I mean, good or bad, whatever comes out of it and how, whatever changes we end up making as a planet because of what's happening, we're going to go through it together. And it, and it, it may get a lot worse before it gets better. It, it may spin around and hopefully, you know, uh, we're, we have very short memories about the pain and suffering very often um, and then fail to prepare for the next time. Yeah. Um, I think all of us agree. I mean, and I'm not a doomsayer. I'm, I think I'm one of the most optimistic people you'll ever meet. Yeah. But in optimism, it is actually ignorant and naive to not expect um, more challenges. Yeah. I don't run a hundred miles because I think it's going to be easy. Never. Not yeah. one time have I ever run one of those races thinking, oh, well, this one's going to be easy. I don't care mm-hmm. if it's downhill and whatever. I mean, it's, it's going to be hard. And the whole point of doing it, in fact, is that I'm going to hit a point in that race where I want to quit. That's why I'm there. That's the point I want to get to is the place where I'm absolutely 100% certain I can't go any farther. And then I find a way to go farther. Yeah. Cause that's the moment that you'll remember, you know, your, your half marathon that you did in Brooklyn, you know, you weren't sure you could do it. And I guarantee you, if I ask you, I'm actually going to ask you right now, we're having a conversation. What's the most memorable moment in that race for you? What's the one that stands out for you that you're the most proud of? Is there a moment you can point to? It was like going up the hill in Prospect Park and being like gassed out and being like, oh shit. And I, and I had a playlist going that was working for me and I just was, I need to hear whatever the next song is. And the next song happened to be my pump up song that just always gets me. It's like my <laughs> runner's cocaine or whatever. Uh, yeah. And, and it came on at the perfect time and I, and then the rest was downhill and then the finish. And I, I went, I was pacing myself with a group and then, which I thought was like what I could do. And it was obviously longer than I'd ever run before. And I started just running way faster than them. And the finish line came before I even expected it. And all of a sudden I look and I'm like, there it is. And the last hundred yards I was running like my life depended on it. Like someone was chasing me with, you know, and I sprinted through and just was screaming at the end. It was like, I've never been more proud of myself. And yeah. you just go like, and, and I think, and it, this is something I was going to ask you later, but like, I'm someone who really, and I, I don't think I'm unique in this. I really enjoy being comfortable. I mm. like to, I, I like to sleep, you know, like, uh, yeah. I don't, I don't, there's not a lot of adventure in my life. There's not a lot of risk. Like when I moved to my current apartment, I, I found a neosporin that had been expired for about eight years. So I'm not even getting cuts, you know, like I'm not taking a lot of risk. And, and so I'm like, man, I really got to get out there a little bit more. And, and so for me to do something that I thought was beyond me and to make myself uncomfortable and how many times I went running at Sunday night at 1130 because the Nike app doesn't roll over and let you move it past Sunday. 
And I was yeah. like, shit, I got to do this. Oh, it's raining. Oh, it's 98 degrees. Uh, and I'm in the middle of cornfields in Indiana. I'm like, well, I got to do it. And uh, all those times where I was just like my normal lazy self would have been like, well, I don't want to go out and do that. Um, and I pushed yeah. through it. And I think I was probably even more proud of the training um, yeah. because I, I got out there and I did it. Yeah, the race day is actually the payoff. It's the bonus. Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting to me, the first thing that came to your mind was the struggle of going up that hill, because those are the moments we don't, we don't remember how easy something was. We remember how hard it was. And so I will, I will, I will give you a little bit of a hard time here. Cause I actually give a whole talk that basically is called comfort is overrated <laughs> because really nothing valuable ever comes from seeking comfort, you know, in, in, Look, all of us experience, just like right now, we experience plenty of discomfort that's brought upon us, um, put upon us by, um, you know, by things out of our control. And, and so there's plenty of that. But I, I take those lessons and the lessons that I learned as an addict and I say, okay, why not put myself in lots of uncomfortable positions and trust the process, trust the fact that out of that is going to come something useful, something that I can really, um, that I can really learn from. And so I, I think that, um, I always make the joke that like somewhere in the mid fifth, like we were the most, uh, you know, inventive, like the industrial revolution in the early 1900s. Like we, if somebody was going to do it, an American was going to do it. And like somewhere around the mid fifties, like somebody invented the electric can opener because apparently we were all of a sudden just too exhausted to open uh -huh. our own cans anymore. And like from that point on, most innovation became geared towards making life easier. Mm. What has ever come out of making life easier? You, you know, we don't, I'm not saying you can't enjoy comfort in a moment or have a comfortable home or car or whatever, but a comfortable yeah. life is one that will not yield um, emotional, spiritual, physical lessons, uh, that will allow, I mean, the fact of the matter is your run, the things I've done, whatever prepared us for what we're going through right now. Yeah. Like, you know, we spend most of our time in pretty, even if life is like this, this up and down, it's still pretty much kind of in the middle and we mm -hmm. don't have a lot of like huge highs and we don't have a lot of like really bad lows. Yeah, we're mostly in the middle and, and we're just preparing for times when things are going to get difficult. And, and now's the time to be an optimist. You know, I mean, if anybody can be an optimist when everything's going your way, but, but who are you when everything's going badly or, or yeah. at least difficult? Like that's the time to be a leader and not with your words because mm -hmm. people don't really care what you say. They care what you do. So the behavior that we're putting out there to the world and how we go about conducting ourselves is, is what people will emulate, not what we tell them to do. Yeah. And this isn't the time to shrink. It's the time to rise no. to rise to it and, 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 and see what you're capable of and what your community is capable of. Yeah. 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 Um, speaking is, of, I mean, yeah, go ahead. I, I was, I was going to transition to the next one, but what were you going to say? Please. No, no I, I got nothing. <laughs> well, I was going to say, speaking of uh, seeking out uh, discomfort, how, how did it come about that you decided to run across the Sahara Desert? 
you know, just a terrible, terrible idea. Yeah. Uh, no, you got to watch, you got to watch the movie. And so, um, yeah, you know, so when I, when I started doing uh, all the marathons and I finally decided I wanted to see how far I could go, I, I really just started to enter like 50 milers and then hundred milers. And I started running hundreds of miles across deserts and countries and, I just really fell in love with, uh, you know, people assume that I love running. I love where running takes me. I, mm. I what I really love about running is the stopping part. Yeah. You know, people don't, they, they assume that I must just love to run. And I, I do enjoy the running, but I love the experience of running. And in particular with travel, you know, if you primarily travel, even if you do adventure travel, but you're always in the back of a car, or you're, you know, you're being shown something, you're being right. toured through something rather than on foot, because on foot changes everything. Most of the world outside of our world is on foot. Hmm. Certainly, if you go to Africa, if you go to South America, if you go to a lot of parts of the world, you know, that's how people live. And so to, to drive into a village in a Range Rover or a Toyota Land Cruiser, you get treated a certain way. To right. go into that same village on foot or on a bike, everything changes. Mm. Your perspective changes. How you're treated by the people there changes. So what I really fell in love with was adventure travel and communicating with cultures and people on their terms instead of on mine. Yeah. So what that has to do with the Sahara is I was literally in a hammock, a jungle hammock in the middle of the Amazon jungle. Um, doing a race when a guy I'd never met before, you know, basically said to me, and actually to be in full transparency, it was Ray, yeah, who from Canada, who you met last night in the film, um, and he he's the one who blurted out, "Hey, have you ever thought about running across the Sahara?" And I, I actually told him, "I'm like that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> I mean, you'd have to be a complete idiot to even consider it." Yeah, and so of course. <laughs> I considered it, which yeah. says everything about me. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I went home and I, I started the research and I found out that no one, in fact, had ever run across the Sahara. And I was working as a producer for ABC's Extreme Makeover Home Edition at the time. Love that show, yeah. Yeah, so for a few years, I was a senior producer on that show. And um I had some weird connections and I, I knew a guy who knew a guy and I, I got introduced to James Mall, who ultimately became the director of running the Sahara. He had won an Academy Award a couple of years earlier for another film. And I told him the story and I just said, look, no, it's never been done before. And, uh, you know, I want to be the first. And he's like, OK, well, let's do it. Um, I was shocked. Like, I thought maybe he might give me a student director or Right. You know, usually the thing is, yeah, I got a guy, I'll introduce you to him. And you end up being past 10 people before it's a no. <laughs> yeah. And in this case, a week later, he calls me. He's like, hey, I just hung up with Matt Damon and Matt would like to executive produce the film and he wants to narrate. You know, would that be OK <laughs> with you? And I, you know, I, I, I paused for like three seconds for effect. And I said, you know, I was really hoping for somebody better, you know, but yeah, Matt Damon will do. And, uh -huh. um, you know, and so now I have two Academy Award winners attached to a project about like me running across sand and, 
you know, if a sponsor asked me, are you sure you can do this? I was always, I said, this is, I said, you saw me say this last night. I would always say, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no doubt. If a family or a friend or somebody like that, you know, asked me, I'm like, hell no, I have no idea if I can do this. Like how, there's no book. This isn't the Appalachian yeah. Trail. You know, this isn't the, you know, this isn't something you can go buy 10 books on how to do it. And it's just and so committing just started, and figuring it out. Yeah. 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 Again. And, and so a year later, um, there I am on the coast of Senegal, you know, with about 20 people around me, including my two teammates, Ray and Kevin from Taiwan. And um, we had done a few events together. So we had gotten to know each other pretty well as competitors. And this is the first right. time we're on the same team. And and, um, you know, everybody's excited and we're looking at maps and there's camera crews and support people. And all I can think is, you know, I've dragged everybody out here to the Sahara and we're all going to die. Like, you know, it's 130 degrees and you know, everything is going wrong, like right from the start. And, you know, the first week of this expedition was, the you know, possibly the worst week of my life you know it was it was hot people quit um, both my two co-runners were both on ivs from the heat and i'm pushing the hell out of people because what what you saw the film what doesn't show in the film running the sahara is i'm running a lot same with everybody else you know the three right. of us are running all these hours every day and then when we stop running I've got production duties. Like I've got meetings to take. I've got people I have to talk to in New York and LA and I've got all these other things going on. And by a week into this thing, I was, I was empty. Yeah. I had no buffer anymore. I had no, I think most people that know me in general in life would say I'm a nice person, <laughs> but I lost, I lost the ability to have any buffer. And so any BS that happened, the fact is anything that happened and you saw it in the film, anything that happened that didn't help get us closer to the finish line. Yeah. I attacked. Like yeah. if I felt it was a threat, it was a hurdle. Yeah. Yeah, if it was a hurdle or a threat to the success of the mission, you know, we had investors who had put, you know, a lot of money into this project and there were a whole lot of people out there and there was no such, you know, no such movie as running most of the Sahara. Yeah. And nobody wanted to see that film. <clears throat> and so... Um, Completing the mission you know, was critical to the whole thing, yeah. It was. And, you know, people do. We talked about it at the beginning of this, of this conversation. You know, people have memories of things and how it went. And they tell, they rewrite their own narrative, you know. And like my teammates, you know, we're good friends still. But, you know, they both tried to quit 20 times. Like, it was a daily bit of management. And, like, one of them I had to be hard with and strong and, like, yell at him basically and then the other one kevin the taiwanese friend like if i had yelled at him it would have like he would have mm -hmm. been crushed like i i couldn't treat everybody the same and you know what was i an ass sometimes absolutely there was 500 hours of footage though that was put together by a very creative editor just like you know real, um reality tv yeah telling and, a story 
Yeah. And you know, and the interesting parts were me yelling at people sometimes. And so, <laughs> and so I'm not saying a, that I, it's a definition of hangry. I'm like, how can you, so you were running basically yeah. a, a marathon in the morning, <clears throat> stopping for lunch and then running a marathon at night and then going to bed and then doing it again yeah. each day for over a hundred days in a row, 111 straight days of two marathons a day. And, you know, it was 140 degree ground temperatures for the first 40 days, like every single day. And there was never, there was just never a moment and I, I, where it was easy. And I like to tell people, because I think this is, um, plans are really important. And uh, this is also like relevant to what we're going through right now. You know, mm -hmm. plans are super important. What's way more important though, is adaptability yeah. and, you know, what happens to us isn't nearly as important as what we do about it. And, you know, good and bad things happen to everybody in every situation. And, you know, I hate, <laughs> I always hesitate to say this, but I hate that saying everything happens for a reason. Yeah. It drives me nuts because I understand why people say it. It makes us feel better when usually when something not great has happened in our lives. Yeah. But there is no reason that's inherent, is it, in it? The reason isn't figured out until you know what you're going to do with it. How you respond to what has happened is where the reason comes from. Yeah. You know, most challenges, if you sit your ass on the sofa and, and eat ice cream all day, every day, or drink yourself half to death, good luck finding reason in that. You know, if what happens causes you to take action and change the course of your life, then there's your reason. And the Sahara was like that attitude on steroids. Every single day I woke up at four o'clock in the morning and I wrote in my little pad, here's how the day is going to go. We're going to do this and this and this and this. We're going to get here. We're going to do mm -hmm. this many miles. At the end of the expedition, I went back. I looked through my notes and like on maybe 10 days, it actually went kind of the way I wrote it down. And on a hundred days, it went either a little bit wrong or like completely off the rails. Yeah. Yet, yet we made it to the other end of the Sahara Desert because every day we just, we dealt with what was right in front of us. You can, you can only run today's miles today. You can't run tomorrow's miles. you know? Yeah. And if you and focus on that... Yeah, it's such yeah. a one day at a time mindset that is yeah. so necessary. And I, I, what struck me through the whole thing was uh, the well, there was just like the the isolation. Even though you guys are running together and you've got that going on, the the vastness of the environment, like, still probably felt very alone in in a lot of that. Uh, and then the sandstorm, uh, which I don't know if that was the only sandstorm you went through, <laughs> but like. Uh, I'm sure there was probably others. Can you, can you just like touch on that a little bit of what happened there and what, what that's, what, what that was actually like to, to go through. Yeah. That particular sandstorm. And it, it's an interesting thing because, <laughs> you know, I pointed out when I first saw the first cut. Um, oh, actually that's really not true. I never saw this film until it actually featured at the Toronto film festival. And oh, wow. so it was the first time that I saw the completed film. Um, and by the way, there's a funny story there. Um, Mia Hamm was actually one of the producers of the film, the you know, world famous soccer yeah. player. And she came up to me. She's also a fellow Tar Heel. She came up to me after uh, watching the film and she like put both her hands on my shoulders 
And she looked me in the eye and she said, I understand. I was the asshole on my team too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sometimes, probably a lot of times you need one of those in in certain moments to get you through. Yeah. But the sandstorm was, you know, um, a particularly poignant event, partly because I felt terrified. I mean, this was, what's funny is we were on camera during parts of it, which you could see in the film, but we couldn't see the vehicle. The, on a very, very long lens, the, the camera truck had us spotted, but we were genuinely lost for a while, driving around in circles. Um, it was like being in the middle of the ocean without um, having any clue. And you guys are wearing goggles, was. and I don't know yeah. how you were doing it without a mask on. Uh, just getting yeah. sand in your mouth and your teeth. You got and, blasted, absolutely blasted. And and it's don't forget this sandstorm is happening. So we're long sleeves, gloves, goggles, hats, long pants, and it's over a hundred degrees. So it's a catch twenty two. You know we have to protect our skin from being sandblasted, but you know also with dehydration and everything else going on, it created a really dangerous situation and you know we were we got lost because the routine was every day we had one direct support vehicle you know a land cruiser that would basically drive ahead 5k 10k whatever whatever i told them and we would just follow the tracks in the sand and so it was you know generally speaking i was a navigator but for the most part it's like i look at my map and my compass and it's like okay we're going you know we're going east yeah (laughs) it's it's desert. It's the sand. And we would, we would weave around sand dunes and, and find our way. Well, when the storms blew up, it would happen like that. And it would, um, if they came from behind us, the vehicle, the support vehicle wouldn't even know the storm was going on yet. It's already erased the track. Oh, so they had no idea. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was very, it, look, and comms were almost impossible communications out there because, it's just so vast, but, but I will, I'll tell you, man, there's nothing like, you know, this, the desert and I love deserts in general. I love death Valley. I love the Mojave. I love all kinds of deserts. I always have for some weird reason and the colors and sort of the starkness of the situation in fact is uh, inspirational to me. And you know, the beauty found in starkness is incredible. And the, the light bouncing off the, the, the dunes and at night, like being not having any electric lights within hundreds of miles, not yeah. one. And so you could see every star in the sky. You could hear every sound. Um, you know, I'd normally just take a little foam mat and lay it on the sand and just, I'd, tuck in my sleeping bag and I, I just lay there in the open, in the open desert. It was always funny, you know, scarab beetles, which we've all seen. And like, uh, I forget those movies, but, uh, even like Raiders of the Lost Ark and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, every morning I would wake up and I'd pull up my mat and there would be a hundred or more, uh, scarab beetles or dung beetles, you know, under my, under my mat because they're just looking for a warm place. Uh huh. You know, I wasn't as excited about the scorpions, but, uh, you yeah. know, you know, it was just a, a very stark place, but beautiful. Yeah. And do, do you feel like you, do you feel like you would appreciate or like the isolation of that experience, the desert or just running in general as much 
if you weren't an only, only child? Oh, wow. Man, nobody's ever asked me that before. Would I? Yes. Probably you, you not. No, yeah. that's, a, that's a first. That's a first. That's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I grew up knowing how to entertain myself, you know, mm -hmm. because I just had to. There was no... There wasn't any choice. So I played and I played, you know, army in the woods and, you know, my favorite show on TV was Kung Fu with David Carradine. And, you know, and I was, I had a really vivid imagination and, and that's a, a wonderful thing to have as an ultra runner uh, because it, it allows me to transport myself anytime I want. You know, I do yeah. a lot of meditation and I consider running a meditation also. Uh, people always assume that you have to sit, you know, cross-legged and in a certain, like the meditation has to right. look like a certain thing. And, you know, from training and doing your race, you know, there's a, there's a beauty in the simplicity of running and the discomfort that comes from running is so temporary, you know, and, and, and it is actually that sort of pain and discomfort that helps amplify your ability to get into a certain mind space that you, you really yeah. can, that I can't achieve uh, any other way. Like I can't find an, I can, I can write myself into it sometimes, you know, mm. if I get on yeah. a roll with writing it, it's like I'm slicing myself open and putting it all out there. And that's what running does for me. And, and again, yeah. people just, they assume that running is a certain thing. And because it's an uncomfortable thing, physical thing especially in the beginning like if you just start training from zero yeah. most people go too hard too fast and that's why they hate running yeah. and you know it's it's in fact a window into this very meditative space that you get a chance i get a chance to like my mind goes everywhere i i love to say and i i'll actually quote my own book here um <laughs> You know, Running Man, in the, in the very beginning of it, I talk about, I mean, at this point, actually in the beginning, I'm in prison, which is another story in itself. But I feel like a per, like in a, with a roulette wheel, there's usually just one ball. Like my brain is a roulette wheel, except there's a ball for every spot. So normally in my typical, like just living every day, there's balls bouncing around everywhere, man. And when I go out for a run, like every ball actually finds a slot and for a little while I have peace and, mm -hmm. and the things that I really need to be thinking about, like the things that are most important naturally rise to the top in my head. You know, the things that are important come up, whatever those might be. And I never make any big decisions in my life without going for a run because it oh, reveals, wow. it reveals the truth for me. If I'm, if I'm stuck or I'm staring at a computer screen or I'm whatever, if I'm in that yeah. kind of space, I'm, I'm affected by so many other outer influences. But when I run, and if you don't, you know, if anybody finds some value in this, but running isn't your thing, there's a million ways to do it. You can bike, yeah. you can row, you can meditate, you can, I mean, there's, getting yourself into a place where you can actually evaluate the things that are important to you and the ones that are most meaningful and that actually need to be addressed. Find, find some way to make that happen and life will be better. Yeah, absolutely. 
Now, uh, I also loved the moment in the film or in your your journey where you guys came across, what was it, Fashi? Yeah. It's just an yeah, oasis Fashi in the was, desert. <laughs> yeah, Fashi's a brilliant place. I mean, Fashi, and we don't really talk about it in the film, but there's some things that um, I learned there. So Fashi, for the viewers, listeners, are was a an oasis town, uh, village in the middle of the Sahara. And um, it was in Niger. And it was an unusual place because it was a thousands of year old salt mining town is what it really was. And it's one of the few places in the desert where um, uh, Africans of different descent mix basically i mean that's a that's a gentle way of saying it the black africans from chad and the sudan and these other places were there and the more arab africans were also there so and you have people living in harmony and this amazing town and it was beautiful and the you know the the people were so kind and excited to see us and this is far enough back, you know, 10 or 12 years that, you know, there, there might have been the occasional cell phone or something, but it's not like people were calling ahead right. saying, hey, you know, there's some white people getting ready to run through your village, you know. Um, we just showed up and people would like just come pouring out of their houses and kids would run with us. And Fashi was exceptional, but we had a similar experience to that like hundred, a hundred times. Wow. Like multiple times every day where a village would just empty out and like gawk at us and the kids would come run. And, and by the way, too, it was pretty humbling because there would be, you know, nine year old little girls that would run, you know, 10 miles out into the desert with us and then just turn around and go back. Right. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. Barefooted or in flip flops. And, and, you know, and it's just, uh, those were some of my favorite memories they are some of my favorite memories of my life and i did this cool thing and this wasn't part of the film uh but i i it's one of my favorite memories i took a i found a polaroid camera which it was really even hard to find a polaroid even then mm-hmm. but i had a polaroid camera and i had about 20 rolls of polaroid film <clears throat> and so what i would do is i would take pictures of kids with a Polaroid and I would give them the photo because 99.9% of them had never owned a, I'd never seen a photo of themselves, much less owned one. Right. So I'd give them the photo. And the deal was though, that I then got to take a photo of them with my good camera. Yeah. <clears throat> and so I give them the photo, they'd hold it up. And I've got this whole beautiful series of photos, you know, of these children holding up Polaroids of themselves. And I don't know. It's that kind of cultural interaction that um, is so important and it's so lacking. You know, it's so lacking in a lot of ways these days is just to go, go immerse yourself in somebody else's culture. And, and look, I realize not everybody can, (laughs) can or wants to take a huge chunk of time and go do something crazy like that. But, but there is a way, there are a million different ways to do that and to yeah. interact and to allow yourself be to be um, immersed in somebody else's culture and do things their way and um, accept like joy and love from strangers. Yeah. And, you know, I hope we don't lose that in this time. 
I mean, I can't even, I, I'm a big, one of the biggest huggers you'll ever meet, you know, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's crazy to think about, you know, I sure hope that the world doesn't turn into a non-hugging place because it would, we, it would yeah. be bad. We watched yeah. the film last night and I said to Ashley, I'm like, God, remember when we could hug people? And yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's only been a couple of weeks, but still it's such a thing that you miss and, and long for. Well, uh, now we even know yeah. that doing the whole elbow thing or whatever, like, you know, Six just don't now. do it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just don't different. do it right now. And I'm still running every day, you know, and I, uh, I happen to live in a place where I have a trail accessible to me that is pretty much wide open, but I'll encounter 10 or 15 people in the course of an eight mile run. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and we all like, you'll see two people coming at each other on the trail and both go like, Ooh, this big giant, oh, yeah. you know, it's not six feet, it's 26 feet. And, yeah. and that's the way it should be. I wave and I say hi and they do too. And everybody understands. Well, yeah. there's some numb nuts out there that don't understand. But, um, you know, most people understand that we're in this together. And if you don't follow the, the rules, it's deadly. Yeah. Um, on, on that note, we're just going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with more with Charlie. Okay. Today's episode of Overshare is brought to you by what are you going to do that you didn't think was possible? Now, every time I talk to Charlie, uh, I ask myself this question. It, it usually ends up with me running really, really far which you'll find out later in the episode. But it's a simple but challenging question. What what can we we know what we can do. We know what we're capable of when we're in our comfort zone, when we're feeling good, we're feeling happy. But like what is something that you could do either today or in the next couple of weeks or as soon as we can leave our house and go run around hugging people again? What is the thing that would make you so insanely proud because you never could have imagined doing it? What is that dream? What is the, the the new definition of who you are and what you're capable of? So just take a second now. Think about that. Maybe you let it uh, perk up in your brain while you're taking a shower tomorrow. But I, I really think if we challenge ourselves, we're going to be able to do some pretty, uh, pretty remarkable things. Anyway, thanks for listening. Back to the episode. All right, and we're back. Uh, I think one of the things I want to talk about uh, through watching the film, uh, the the journey is amazing. The you know actually making it to the, well, I don't want to. Should I not spoil that you made it all the way to the end? Uh, I survived. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, you, you lived. Know. Yeah, <laughs> everyone everyone survived. Uh, mm. But the the impact of water out there and seeing you guys like there were people digging wells and just the access or lack of access to water, uh, and then what you did with you know your efforts. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, you know, look, the physical achievement was um, significant. You know, we were fortunate to be the first people ever to cross. Well, I say ever, ever in my knowledge, you know, ever is a long time, but to cross the entire Sahara Desert on foot. And, um, you know, that that is uh, the thing I'm most proud of where that's concerned is that all three of us made it because the odds of all three people making it was very small. Yeah. Uh, part of the reason to have a three person team was kind of the hopes that at least one of us would make it because it's, it's, uh, it was such a hard undertaking, but a year before I went, before we started, I got to go on a scouting trip and what I was struck by in particular in Agadez, which is the, the town where you saw 
there was an airport and we had people come in and visit us and whatever. That town had been a town of about 25,000 people and water was the huge issue. All the wells were drying up in the region. And so Matt Damon and I decided that we would start something called H2O Africa. No clue what we're doing. Like it just made the most sense. It's like, why not go ahead and, and try to start something here and see what comes of it. When I go back a year later and do the expedition, there's now 250,000 people living in the same village. And it's because everyone's being driven there because of the lack of water in all the outlying areas. So water had become this huge problem. And I thought, I'll tell you the truth, I felt guilty. You know, I was, mm -hmm. here we were basically, you know, playing adventure, as I mm -hmm. like to say, you know, and going through this part of Africa while people are suffering. And it's a really, it's a complex thing. I'm not um, immune to understanding the optics of that kind of thing. Right. Um, you know, I'd be wearing a jacket or a pair of tennis shoes that's probably worth more than, you know, most people made in a month or six months. And mm -hmm. so that said, you know, I, I made it my mission to, to do the best I could to help create a better situation there. And so I raised, when the film came out, I managed to raise about $6 million for H2O Africa. It became interesting because neither, you know, I certainly am not an administrator. Um, right. My heroic view was that I would go back to Africa with a, a pick and a shovel and I would hand dig <laughs> well, you know, and that was not a, a realistic uh, idea. So uh, all of a sudden we have this money and we, we joined with, uh, another organization, which at the time was called Water Partners. And uh, then it became that it all became water.org. And today, you know, you can see Matt Damon is still very involved. If you ever see an ad for like Stella Artois, yep. uh, he does. And, and I mean, water.org has taken in more than 1.2 billion in funding. That's and cool. that all happened because I thought it would be a good idea to run across the Sahara Desert. And I, I think right. the, the thing that I like to point out to people is I'm no, like, uh, we get, again, this comes back to the whole narrative idea. We get to recreate our narrative sometimes. Um, and you can tell a story in a certain way that makes you look good. I, man, I just wanted to see if I could run across the Sahara Desert. That's all I wanted to do. Yeah. And if I could do something good at the same time, then, of course, why not? ultimately water.org and the value of that has, has, you know, surpassed the value of actually running across the Sahara a million times over. And there's hundreds yeah. of thousands of people who have a life today, thanks to, you know, water.org. And, yeah. you know, and I'm, I'm proud of the fact that the, just a kind of a knuckleheaded idea that running across the biggest desert in the world might do some good in the world. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible, and uh, it seemed like you know from hearing your story, you, things were going really well, and till they weren't. <laughs> yeah, so, life was good, what, man. I what, what, I got what the hell I happened. On, I was on Jay Leno, and I got to be on NPR, and I you know I got to do all these things, and uh, I got speaking gigs like crazy. Signed a deal with a big agency, and. 
um, discovered, you know, I really enjoyed speaking and I was pretty good at it. And um, yeah, things were going well. And, and I was out running errands one day uh, in my little town of Greensboro, North Carolina. And I came back to my, my condo building and I got out of my car and out of the corner of my eye, I saw a movement and I saw uh, ultimately six armed federal agents running towards me. And, you know, like I looked over my shoulder and to see who they were after mm-hmm. and, you know, they were after me and they handcuffed me and put me in a car and took me downtown where I spent the night having no idea what was going on. And uh, the next day I was handed a big stack of papers, which was an indictment. And ultimately uh, it took me a while to figure it out. Um, But with a couple read throughs and the help of an attorney friend of mine, um, I basically figured out that I was being, I was essentially the only person in the United States at the time to be charged with overstating my income on a home loan application. And for that, I could be sentenced to, you know, up to 20 years in federal prison. And yes. unbeknownst to me, um, there, a tax investigation had been started on me at, when running the Sahara. So it's interesting. The thing that defined me in a way, the thing that had been sort of the pinnacle of all these years of hard work with running the Sahara was also the thing that made me a target. And, you know, one guy that worked for the IRS in Greensboro decided that he wasn't impressed with me. And and with no, I mean, it's in all the documents. I'm not, you know, there's no other red flags. Like he saw the film and just decided, hey, I want to see how that guy makes a living. And I'd been self-employed for many years. So he audited, like he, he did everything and found nothing. There's memos in the paperwork that says, you know, found no evidence of the guy pays his taxes. Mm-hmm. and he just wouldn't stop and i had had a home loan and don't forget this is 2007 now so think about where we were then this is the last time this country was in right disaster mode right we're we're ramping up for this financial crisis back then and i had had a property that had gone back to the bank you know when things crashed it was an investment property i wasn't some big real estate guy i was just a normal borrower but, you know, I made the prudent decision and I let it go back to the bank. And he found paperwork associated with that loan that he felt like was um, overstating one's income. I, I didn't do it. Mortgage broker did it. It was in there, but it didn't matter. I right, because they, the they were doing that all the time to get people all the time. loans. If you right. had a pulse, you could get a loan. Like. Right. There was no, and I had a good credit score, you know, in the mid 700s or whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, I was a, I was a legitimate, you know, and every two or three years I would buy a property. Yeah. I'd hold on to it for a while, fix it up some and sell it. You know, I did yeah. this six or eight times and it was a good way to supplement my other income. And so, but certainly no real estate magnet, right. but you know, this guy decided that he was, he was going to keep digging until he found something. and. This is what he found. And the mortgage broker admitted to like forging my name on the loan application. Like it seemed like there's no way I could not like get get out of of this. But I signed the closing package. And when you sign that closing package, you attest to all the information that's in the package. And then I put it in the mail. So I was found not guilty of providing false. I was found not guilty of everything, but guilty of mail fraud. 
because I took a package of the stuff, you know, this thick closing package, I put it in the mail and I sent it off and that became mail fraud. And I went to trial. Like nobody, nobody goes to trial against the feds because you're going to lose. Um, only 3% of all federal indictments actually go to trial because again, yeah. no, nobody takes that risk and because they'll make it worse for you if you right. fight them. Yeah. And, you know, but I wasn't going to admit to something I didn't do. I had young kids at home. I, yeah. I just, you know, I, I wasn't going to do it. And um, so I go to trial and I lose. You know, I mean, I'm found guilty and I'm sentenced to 21 months in federal prison in Beckley, West Virginia. And on, on Valentine's Day, 2011, my teenage boys take me to prison and drop me off in Beckley, West Virginia. And, wow. you know, and I, I feel in some ways, I mean, you've been listening to my story. Yeah. Uh, strange as it sounds. I mean, I got there and I was, I was sad. I was scared. Um, who wouldn't be, uh, but mostly I was pissed <laughs> and, you know, I went in there with a head of steam and I, I, it took me a, only a few days to realize like I wasn't going to make it if I, if I held on to this anger and bitterness and I had to figure out who I was going to be in prison. And interestingly, it dawned on me. I mean, I'd been sober for 18, 19 years at that time. Um, I'd run across the biggest desert in the world and I'd done all these events and I was actually the most well-prepared person for prison that you've ever known. I knew how to get through hard times. And the, the thing that struck me more than anything, and it was the most important thing maybe that ever happened to me there is in those first few days, you know, i I met the guy in the cell next to me who was roughly 60 years old, African-American you know, we're having a conversation and he asked me what I'm in there for. And I tell him and he tells me that, you know, he basically got a 25 year sentence for um, one gram of crack cocaine because he had had two shoplifting charges before that. And so his entire life had been taken away, you know, and so it, it gave me a new definition of unfair and, you know, I realized in that moment that fair or unfair didn't matter anymore. I had to figure out what I was going to do with this time and who I was going to be in there. And then once I got out and so I started to run and not surprisingly, and I ran around the rec yard every day. And if we were in lockdown, which was a lot of the time, and I think about those guys, those poor guys now, um, people in prison right now, it's, it's like, it's a whole nother topic, man. They're, they're so screwed, um, and being mistreated and like, you know, it's a, it's a breeding ground for COVID-19. But anyway, um, when, when we were in lockdown, I ran in place. Sometimes I'd run in myself for six hours in one spot. And, you know, people thought I was nuts actually. Uh, which actually in prison isn't a bad thing um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for the middle-aged white guy. It was actually all right to, for people to think I was just crazy. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, the strangest thing happened as a runner. There were, there were only a few runners there when I got there uh, to Beckley and I never encouraged anybody else. I never said, Hey, come run with me. But slowly but surely people started to come up to me and say, Hey, I see you running every day you know, could you help me run? And 
by the time I left there, I had a running group of about 50 guys that were running with me every day, every day, Amazing. you know, and I was training a lot of them and they were running half marathons and marathons. And I had like more than 10 guys run, lose like a hundred pounds or more. And, wow. you know, um, I even did what yoga. You do. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a track. It's a, what I say always attraction rather than promotion. You know, I wasn't out there promoting running. I was just doing my thing and other people will come ask you about your thing. If they're attracted to that, if they see right. some value in it, especially in a hard situation, they'll come up to you and ask, how are you doing it? And, um, you know, I even did yoga on the softball field a few times uh, early on, which I will say I was heckled uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> mercilessly and made fun of, like, seriously. And by the time I left, I had 25 guys doing yoga with me a few days a week out on the softball field. And I mean, there's, there's nothing actually funnier in some ways than seeing a bunch of dudes in prison doing yoga out in the outfield. Um, yeah. But, you know, when I got there, there was no running when i left there was a lot of running and I, there were so many hugs and tears and everything else when i left um and people saying you know thank you for what you did for me and i was i was blown away justin because frankly i didn't do it for them you know right. i i did it because that was the only way i was going to get through this experience and yeah. what they did for me was a thousand times greater than what i did for them and and we all have gifts and, and I love to say, you know, the simple phrase to keep it, you have to give it away. Mm -hmm. And like, if you, whatever your gift is, if you're not sharing it with other people, especially when times are hard, what are you doing? Like, why are you, why would you hoard your gifts? Whether it's, you know, talent or time or sympathy or money or whatever it is mm -hmm. that you've got to give, find a way to help somebody else. And it will in turn, help you get through it you know and so i got out of prison and and yeah. you know i i was given the gift of perspective you know my biggest joke in prison was you know i went in there and everybody's got tattoos you know the, the whole the whole thing about getting a prison tattoo and all that i'm like I'm like what kind of tattoo am i going to get for mail fraud like a, a fountain pen or something <laughs> like just a little stamp. teardrop right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh you know, but I got out and I, and I, once again, I resumed like anybody else getting out of prison. It limited things in a lot of ways. You know, I, I had this, you know, capital F for felon, I felt like on my forehead. And, um, and I did what I think that the best decision I ever made is I owned it. I just simply said, like, I'm not going to wait for other people to say things about me. Like the mm -hmm. easiest way for me to go about this is to just say, here's what happened. So you saw me on stage. I don't pull any punches. I, mm -hmm. I try to just say, here's what happened. And here's what I did about it. Early in our conversation, I, I said, you know, what happens to us isn't nearly as important as what we do about it. And, you know, I used it and I got a, you know, I got to write a book. Simon and Schuster published my memoir and, um, you know, I had a lot of other opportunities. I'm not recommending prison, but you know, <laughs> I was you just can, trying to, I was going through the motion of what I could do right now. I'm like, <laughs> all right, how can I get there? 
Yeah. <laughs> well, you're kind of in a little prison right now. You know, you just have a much more attractive roommate than I had. So, <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you I, know, I, but I mean. Yeah. And I guess the question is like, how, yeah, how does your perspective shift, you know, once you get out? Because, I, you know, I think we're all going through that right now. There's a lot of, you know, like this sucks, you know, and if uh, our only job is to sit at home and watch Netflix. It's not that hard. Uh, but, you know, I think for people who aren't accustomed to this, I, I feel our priorities are changing. I feel yeah. uh, the things that we are valuing and realizing are important to us are, are shifting. Did you, you must have found that by, you know, the things that you yeah. went through. Well, on this, you know, here's the other weird parallel. And this is the first time I've actually said this out loud that I was thinking about it the other day. One of the things about being in prison is the lack of physical contact. Right. So there's no hugging. There's no touching. There's no. And, you know, you can insert your own prison joke there, yeah. but there's yeah. no there's no like you don't get to, you know, with family if they come to visit or whatever. There's no right. there's no physical contact. So I went a year and a half without having a meaningful hug, like someone who actually cared about me, giving me a deep, long hug. And that was really hard. Like that was, that was a shift for me. And I recognized when I got out how appreciative I was because uh, I'd always been a hugger and especially with my kids and, yeah. you know, my mom. And so getting back out and being able to um, have that physical contact was, was really critical for me. You know, yeah. I desperately needed it. And you know, perspective wise, I, I think it, it certainly changed. And I like to think I always appreciated my time. But um, I certainly appreciated it even more after that. And yeah. the value of relationships and of being present. And look, I think one of the hardest times that we're all going through right now, um, especially, I don't even know if I'd say high achievers, that might be too self congratulatory. But like, <laughs> There's a pressure right now because we don't have anything to do. A lot of us, there's a pressure to like, I have to accomplish something like I got to learn a language. I've got to get in <laughs> yeah. shape. I've got to like, and in a weird way, me included, many of us are taking this. And for the first time ever, we actually don't have a lot of pressure on us. Like on a day, I'm not talking financial Everybody's got a different situation around that. Like I'm, yeah. I have a lot of financial pressure and I feel that, but I really can't do anything about it right now. Like I'm not going to yeah. magically invent an online business at this moment that is going to make me a bunch of money. So I need to accept right. the fact that um, there's certain things I can be working on, but I don't want the pressure of feeling every day. I encourage everybody watching this to do, and I'm saying this out loud because I haven't done it yet. I have not just taken a day and cut myself some freaking slack and said today I can, I can lay on the sofa all day and watch Netflix if I want, or I can go for a little run and at no particular pace, I can just like have a day and yeah. I need, I need to do a better job right now of doing that for my own sanity. Um, and then there also needs to be, you know, then, I need to feel like I'm, I need to write in my journal. I'll tell you what I'm doing. And I know we're just about out of time, but I am, you know, my project that's going on now, and you know about this is my 5.8 project. Yeah. And 
it's this global adventure and it fits our time right now. Like I, I, you know, I swear I didn't make uh, COVID-19 happen, but, um, you know, 5.8 is this idea of we all spend our lives bouncing from like low places to high points. And uh, I decided to take that as a literal challenge and say, I'm going to go from the world's lowest place, which is the Dead Sea in uh, Jordan. And I'm going to go to the world's highest, which everybody knows is Mount Everest. And I'm going to swim across the Dead Sea. I'm going to run across the Arabian Desert. I'm kayaking a thousand miles across the Indian Ocean. I'm mountain biking across India to the base of Mount Everest. And then I'm climbing to the top. And that is the the ultimate goal of 5.8. I call it 5.8 because and it could, it, it's no more um, relevant ever than it is right now. It's about 4,500 miles between the Dead Sea and Mount Everest, but it's only 5.8 vertical miles. Like from the lowest place to the highest point is only five point, less than six miles. 5.8 yeah. vertical miles from lowest. And we're all in it together. Every human on the planet lives within this little tiny sliver of space that surrounds the Earth. And whether you want to be or not, you can be nationalistic all you want. You can be isolationist. You can be all these things. But you're not getting out of the fact that we are all on this planet in this tiny little space together. And we need to do a better job of being, you know, uh, shepherding in better treatment of the planet that we live on and the people that we live around. And, um, you know, that's what this 5.8 project is focused on. And I actually decided I'm going to do that on all seven continents. I think you know that. And just because one, one wasn't enough. Right. Well, I mean, one would just be boring, you know, in truth, <laughs> in truth, if I'm going to be really transparent, my goal was just to do Dead Sea to Everest, but it's a really expensive undertaking and I need sponsors. I need, you know, I need support, you know, I'm yeah. not a wealthy guy. So I need to go out there and find support from a lot of places. And the reality is um, I had a, in the, its original form, I had said, I'm going to do this on all seven continents. Um, and look, the other continents, most of them anyway, are shorter and less expensive. And I was in Africa just several months ago for yes, continent. Yeah. Continent number one. And I went from uh, Djibouti. There was a lake in Djibouti that's in East Africa. That is the lowest elevation in Africa. And I really love saying the word Djibouti a lot. Of course, so I say yeah. it all the time. And <laughs> um, I had to go from there across Ethiopia and Kenya and into Tanzania to the top of Kilimanjaro. And it was about 2,500 miles and crazy hot and hard, difficult experience. I write about it in my blog and my website. And um, there are 150 we, I, degrees or something. Yeah. The ground temperatures were crazy. Ambient temperature 125, ground temps of 150, and like it was just, I felt like I was melting. And uh, it was an amazing story because it was a hard place. You know, Ethiopia was not a friendly place, and in Kenya, I actually got kidnapped for a little while, and it's a crazy story. And holy shit, you know, it's on my blog. It's uh, there's a blog called One Bullet, One Goat, and like kidnapped at gunpoint, and um. But I filmed pretty much everything on this journey. And so the, the, if there's a silver lining to having downtime, it's lots of time to edit. Yeah. And, you know, so 
one of my goals is to come out of this uh, current situation with, you know, some assets, some things that will help me um, resume the part of my life that's most important. And uh, so my hope is that I can do that. And, you know, and I, I don't know if it's possible though. The ultimate Dead Sea to Everest is a really big undertaking. And how long do you think that would take you from start to finish? It could take me about four, four and a half months. Wow. You, you have to back into it because of course Everest, as most people know, has a climbing window right um every year and like you have to pretty much be there during those that month or so in may primarily and uh of course there's no climbing season this year um even climbing everest was canceled uh they're not doing any permits and so um so that's almost two months of the journey is just the everest part and then it's 4500 miles getting there and so It'll be a lot of um, long, hot, crazy days. Look, I love it. I launched, um, I have launched green.org, which people can check out. Um, just as I helped to launch H2O Africa, now water.org, um, I launched green.org with some partners, and we are deeply committed to using technology, green technologies to partner with other nonprofits around the world to help solve, you know, local issues, whether it's energy or clean water or education. Um, I feel very fortunate to be in a position to, to do that uh, for some folks. And yeah. COVID-19 is affecting everybody on the planet now. So we've shifted a lot of our focus over to trying to use some resources to, you know, make masks to yeah. <laughs> like help help people any way possible yeah. yeah any way possible because that's what everybody should be trying to figure out is is yes keep yourself safe and and make progress as a as a person um but if you have an opportunity to help somebody else um uh, we can't stop doing that yeah absolutely um i have two more questions so at the end i usually do a section called this might get uncomfortable but I don't think that applies to you. I don't think it's possible to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> You'd have to try uh, really hard. <laughs> try really hard. Uh, so I just have a couple questions. Uh, do you feel like you have something to prove? Ooh. <sighs> that is a really, I would love to say no, but that would be a lie. Because I am still built, you know, the the addict part of me, you know, that that insecure little boy of an addict that still very much lives inside me. It doesn't dominate me. It doesn't rule me, but you know, that insecurity is still sitting there. And when people tell me I can't do something or when something happens, you know, I feel that that guy dig in and I would love to tell you that it's all for personal satisfaction, but there is still embedded in there the need to prove my value mm-hmm. as a human being through accomplishments as opposed to just being. And that's yeah. just an honest, an honest answer. Yeah. It's a work in progress. Absolutely. Um, do you feel like your ambition ever gets in the way of your happiness? hundred hmm. percent. Yeah. Because I'm actually, you want to know something crazy? I'm comfortable in chaos, right? Like I am, I'm the guy that you actually want on your team if people are shooting at you, right? I mean, I'm, I'm because my, low. Yeah. 
Totally. My years of addiction and all that I saw and put myself through and all these long runs that I've done and I've been in danger. Like I'm, I'm comfortable in chaos where I really struggle is when things are just okay. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's a, it's again, it's something, you know, my wife is a much more, uh, not surprisingly, you know, emotionally mature person than I am. And, you know, I'm, I seek discomfort to my own detriment sometimes because I, you know, I, I, I somehow can't just sit still and be, and it's something I'm working on. Just before all this happened, um, I got to spend some great time with Deepak Chopra. I was at this function in Florida. It was a medical, uh, there were two former surgeon generals and this is at the end of February. Like this is really before things like all of a sudden, I can't believe in fact that I haven't gotten an email saying you were exposed to COVID-19 because there were like 300 people there from all over the world and whatever. But um, the time with uh, Deepak Chopra, who's a medical doctor also, as long as, as well as a, you know, a Buddhist and a spiritualist, um, it was really good for me. And it, it allowed me to look at some things from a different perspective. Now, all this has happened and all that's out the window. I'm back to my sort of crazy, chaotic self. And I, I part of my goal is to get back to meditating every day and to mm. not just when I'm running, but also to take a few quiet minutes and yeah. and maybe um, not feel like ambition has to drive my next decision. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to let go of. It is. I, I know personally, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, art, you know, art is something, you know, my mom was an artist. She was a writer and, and like, she could never, she could never let it, it go, whatever it was. And she could never finish a project either. Like she, uh, when she passed a couple of years ago, you know, I found 25 projects that she almost finished. She, she finished plenty. That's unfair. Right, she right. was very successful at what she did, but right. you know, she always had to be creating and struggled with the completion and I feel like I've got you know more than my share of that going on too but yeah at least I think I'm pretty aware of it yeah sounds like you are uh what what is success to you success is actually um being uh being peaceful Man, I don't know if satisfied is ever something that I'm, I don't necessarily have a desire to be satisfied, but actually finding, finding peace, um, in the presence of, um, unfixed problems or unfixable problems. Yeah. Cause like, you know, there is never a time there's never, and I don't ever expect in my life for there to ever be a time where I can say, I don't have a single issue to work on right now. Right. And so if we can't find a way, and in sobriety, of course, we talk about, um, God, language actually escapes me, but basically the, the, to find peace in the, in the midst of chaos is really what it's all about. You know, can you yeah. calm your mind and actually be okay? Like for me, that's, that's personal success. I don't have any concept of business success because it's, uh, I need to be more focused on it. Sometimes I actually do feel comfortable saying I need to do more of it because I'm not ever really cared that much about it. You know, money to me is a, is a way that I get to go do something else I want to do. It's not something that I want sitting in the bank 
right. just so I don't have to worry about. It's a tool. Yeah. I mean, because look at right now, not to freak people out, but I mean, none of us even knows if whether you got $100 or $10 million in the bank right now, you don't even know what that's going to be worth a month from now or six months from now. The only thing we can all count on is right here and our our acceptance and ability and to try to not be fearful, not be consumed by the fear and instead know yourself that you're going to adapt to this new world that we're in. And, you know, through love and kindness and not in some like, you know, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, love and kindness is the, is still the key. You know, if you can look at every situation with compassion and, and not always think about what's in it for me from, yeah. doesn't mean you can't think about what's in it for me at some point. But, you know, to try not to have that be the first thought that comes to mind. And just if you have something to give, to, if, you know, to keep it, you have to give it away. And I, I think that's the important part. You will not keep your gift if you do not share it with other people. I believe that. Yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful note to end on. My last question is, how are you feeling right now? I feel like I just had an awesome therapy session. Thank you very much. So, <laughs> seriously, I feel great. Charlie. Yeah, oh, awesome. I feel I feel energized, and you know, I have been running a lot. So I ran I ran like twenty miles a day the last week, and uh, I just you know I just been going out for long, peaceful runs, and I, today was a day off because I had other stuff to do from running, and yeah. so I feel you you. You helped me today have, you know, the energy that I've got and that I feel was, was perfect to have a really open, honest uh, conversation. And I appreciate how you did it. So thank you. I appreciate, I appreciate you, Charlie. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm glad I got to, to thank you in, in person for the gift that you gave me a couple of years ago. And I even like, after all this, I, you know, I'm like, I want to do another half, but then I was like, Fuck it. I should just sign Come up on, for man. New- I just signed you, up for the New biggest, York. The, your biggest problem now is me and your life. Because <laughs> I'm going I'm, I'm to go. Uh, well, now yeah. I want to do the New York City Marathon when this is all over because I want to be there, around 50,000 people. Dude, there is no doubt that you should. And there's no yeah. doubt that you can. If you can run yeah. a 5K, you can run a 10K. If you run a 10K, you can run a half marathon. If you run a half, you can run a – you could run a marathon today. And I'm not kidding you, you know, because it is about perspective and expectations and the mental approach to things. Like, I know for sure if your life depended on it today, you could cover 26.2 miles. Yeah. And, and you know, so believing in any sort of physical limitations is self-defeating and, you know, you're never going to be fully prepared. And people people forget that the best lessons are embedded in the hardest um, experiences that we have. And so yeah. sometimes you just got to go for it. Yeah. I, I think I got to go for it now. And I just said it to you. So now we know when I say something to you, I, I yeah. commit to it. So yeah, we'll, we'll talk also, training. So anytime you want, we'll talk, all right. talk, uh, training plan. Perfect. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. Justin, it was my pleasure. I enjoyed it. All right. All right. Be safe. Damn it. Every time I talk to Charlie, Really, I commit to running really, really far. Uh, I just committed to running the New York City Marathon, but I'm excited about it. I know I can do it. Charlie said I can do it, uh, and he's right. So uh, <laughs> I love that he said your biggest problem now is me and your life. Uh, well, I look forward to getting a run in with you, Charlie, 
getting a little bit of training going and uh, I appreciate you making me think I'm capable more than even I think I am. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to tackle this challenge and uh, anybody who's out there listening, what's, what's one thing you could tackle that you didn't think you could ever do? Um, let's, let's go get it. Let's go make it happen. And if anybody wants to run the New York City Marathon with me, let's do it. Let me know. Uh, now, if you enjoy this episode of Overshare, please subscribe, rate, and review us. Uh, as I told you before, that's how we show up higher in rankings and other people can discover the podcast. And you can also go to our Instagram at Overshare Talks and share sound bites. Some of the amazing insights from uh, this conversation are in there with some collages of Charlie's work and some photos of him running. Uh, and you can share that out as well. Uh, thank you to our audio engineer and editor, Jesse Peterson, and the team at Second Child in New York City. Big thanks to our producer, Moira Spahich, and a huge thanks to Eugene Ong and Gabby D'Amato for the Overshare branding. And you can see Eugene's handiwork on our Instagram, which I just mentioned, at Overshare Talks, with all the collages with from all the episodes this season. You see his hands in there working and making it happen. Uh, our theme song is Let It Grow by Caleb Grow. Now, if you are a creative or higher creatives, we would love to have you join us at Working Not Working. Uh, Working Out Working is a curated community of the best creatives in the universe. Uh, the best of the best in the industry are on Working Not Working. And if now, if you are an amazing creative or you like to hire amazing creatives, please join us at Working Out Working. We are a curated network of the best creatives in the universe. Uh, that's not hyperbole. It's the best of the best in the industry. So if you are one of those folks or you like to hire those folks, uh, please sign up at WorkingOutWorking.com. Companies like Apple, Google, Facebook, Nike, Airbnb, Droga5, Winding and Kennedy all use Working Out Working to fill freelance and full-time roles. We'd love to have you be a member and join our community at WorkingNotWorking.com. Now that's it for this episode. Don't touch your face and please take a minute to reach out to someone and check in on them. Make sure they're doing all right. We're going to get through this. We just got to do it together. So uh, appreciate you listening. We'll see you next time.